0: Well, my turn. <laughs> I did take, dedicate this talk to all those in pain who want to find their hearts to heal. And it's not easy to find our hearts and heal. It's an arduous Difficult journey. So I'll offer you a reading from Hafiz. It's called For Three Days. Not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. That means not leaving. You better get a a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get a chamber pot too. No reading or writing poems. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360 degree detox. Please remember, that sitting alone though is not recommended if you're normally sedated. (coughs) So dear friend, don't let Hafiz fool you. For there is a ruby buried here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. So, first, I want you to know just how deeply touched I've been in these days. Talked with quite a number of you, and you know, I know that. Um, <coughs> In retreat, since we're taking away a lot of the uh, distractions and busyness and duties of life, that we really get a chance to sit with ourselves and to be with what's here. And I know just sitting in this position, looking out, sometimes it's a very beautiful picture, sometimes it's not so. The pain, the heart... I know here that uh, lots of people have shared there's a lot of physical pain, fears, in some cases some very severe traumas, illness. Metaphorically we can say we've been experiencing with this community the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And perhaps what's brought us here is some hope. Some hope. Why would I even want to go to a retreat? Obviously, there may be some hopes to experience more peace and freedom. And I'm hoping that all of us, or many of us, have experienced just, if it's even a little less suffering, that's good. Maybe someday will lead to a lot of lessening of suffering, but perhaps we can call this as the path of lessening the suffering. And we know that it's not easy to sit within ourselves, within our flesh and bones. And we know that if you practice mindfulness, you will definitely have moments when you're wanting... And of course, it's opposite aversion or not wanting. You'll be faced with sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, and of course, wandering mind. I think at this point I don't have to tell you that. You know. And this is so predictable and normal, it's actually written in the meditation texts. These are things to be expected and to be worked with. Banti Gunaratana, he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But he says, no problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but you just haven't noticed. <laughs> So we're learning to work with what comes up as part of practice. And Jill very beautifully read to us and shared um, Rumi's Guest House. Powerful words, welcome and entertain them all. And that there is a tradition, a perennial wisdom that is cross cultural through many spiritual traditions of this process of turning towards rather than away what we fear, what we don't want. Dana Falls, she writes, this life isn't about slicing off the parts I don't like to be left with those that I do. I choose the whole array, night and day, ease and its opposite, the squeaky wheel and the grease gun. Push away any piece of life and a key that could have opened the door is lost. It's tossed out with the trash. I pray for courage to receive this full catastrophe, however it appears to me, without needing to push back. It's quite a prayer. It's called The Whole Array. Dana goes on to say in the most exquisite poem called Allow that there's no controlling life. There is no controlling life life. Try corralling a lightning bolt or containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. (coughs) Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak. Fair fantasies, failures and success And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. So Jason, in his instructions this morning, is beginning to teach us about this practice of observing, allowing. And I'd also even add the word experiencing. Experiencing what's observed. Allow it to be there. We're learning to give space to what's present within us. This morning I was touched with Jerry's very sincere question. And my response about its practices, about helping us to learn balance, to gain perspective, to see the bigger picture, that these different internal weather systems of the body and mind are constantly in a state of change. And by the virtue of giving space, things may begin to shift. And I love the metaphor of the sky. The sky is made of air. And even though we get storms and horrendous storms, category one through five, since the sky is made of air, it's not affected by the storm and it just gives space to whatever's present. And by virtue of that spaciousness, gradually that storm runs its course in what formerly was a category five, shifts to a four, three, two, one, So this practice of allowing, experiencing, observing, pausing, even if you're not able to relax, to pause, to experience, to allow, is like the sky, the skiffy space to whatever internal weather system that we're experiencing, and we will come to see that whatever arises will come to experience that whatever arises passes away. So we're in practice and we're learning to do this and I know it's not easy. But a question I have to ask all of us, including myself, is, well, what else are you going to do? The suffering's here anyways. And Franz Kafka once said, you know, you have suffering and you have your choice on whether you want to deal with it or not and if you don't deal with it, guess what? You get two sufferings. (laughs) So, you know, it seems a little bit more efficient to deal with the suffering at hand. So, I want to really honor and acknowledge what's here. And who knows what we will find out as we acknowledge what's here. Jennifer Wellwood, wonderful poet, she says, Willing to experience aloneness. I know that aloneness has been coming up for some of us. What she's offering here is willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears. I know there's been a lot of fear in the room. I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses. So many losses we've had. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition that I flee from. It pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Very powerful, wise words. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Tonight, the gist of what I want to speak about is suffering and its causes, and its lessenings, and the sense of self. Perhaps this is the essence of many spiritual journeys, is how do we deal with our human condition? Siddhartha gotama who later became the Buddha, he struggled with this condition too. He was a human being, just like you and I. Born to become destined, to become a great king. And in his 29th year, he came across four messengers living a very sheltered life and just not in touch with the realities of life and came across aging, illness, and death. It shook him to his core. And then he happened to come across a wandering monk that was just walking so peacefully and kind of like these rag robes and... Siddhartha asked his charioteersman, Chana, who's this? And he said, this is a person dedicating their life to understanding what is life. And Siddhartha knew at that moment this is what he wanted to do. He had what was called in Pali, the word is samwega. I love this word. Maybe i get that tattooed on me, Jason. <laughs> 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 and you can get the pachigo, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm <checking. laughs> Samvega means, it's actually one word, but it has a a paragraph. It means when you realize that death will come to you or to anyone else at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is the meaning of life. Samvega, one word. I think it's probably getting right on my heart. (laughs) (laughs) You <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> gotta think about it. <laughs> Jane Kane writes in her poem Otherwise mm. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk and a ripe flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room and with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise we don't like to think about that (laughs) Mary Jane Block a woman who was living and dying with breast cancer she writes everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would except your life everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would Accept your life. It's very powerful. Crowfoot, the Blackfoot chief Indian, his last words before he died. He said, "What's life?" It's like the flash of a firefly in the night. It's like the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It's like the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. after a very arduous and difficult journey with Siddhartha Gautama, realizing the futility of self-mortification and self-indulgence and entering into the middle way, set himself underneath the Bodhi tree. And while he was sitting there making his... Resolution in his mind and heart that he was not going to leave this tree and he was going to stay there until he could understand what this life was. And he had studied with so many different teachings and had mastered so many of them, excelled in them, was even offered by the teachers that he studied with to teach along with them, but still he hadn't understood what is this life. And the story goes that as he began to sit, he recalled an incident when he was very young, a child. He was sitting by another tree in one of those beautiful days. We get a lot of these beautiful days here in Santa Cruz. Temperature's just right, the wind's just right, and so forth. And he was just feeling the beautiness of this day. It's just wonderful. And across the way on a farmer's field... There was some farmers that were beginning to with their oxen to put the ploughs into the earth and because of his increased sensitivity and I, as we sit in retreat we, we get such an increased sensitivity to things and young children we all have that capabilities of having that. But he was in a space of a lot of receptivity and sensitivity and as those ploughs blades were going into the earth he could almost sense or feel or hear or experience this sense of the worms crying out in pain. And it's like this really amazing moment. On one hand, the beauty, the preciousness of this world, and the other, the sorrow and the pain. And I think as a way of helping to self-comfort himself, as that young boy, he began to become mindful of his breath in and out. And he recalled this memory, and he began himself to breathe in and to breathe out. While the night progressed, Mara, who some would say is a literal being, others would say is a psychological aspect, and from that point of view, I trust Mara's come to visit there, visit many of us during this week of practice. Mara's the one that says, you know, why don't you just sleep? You won't get anywhere with your meditation. I'm unworthy. All these little voices inside that are kind of preventing us from sitting. And being awake. Anybody know Mara? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mara comes to visit. Well, Mara came to visit that night Siddhartha Gotama, that was becoming very concentrated. Factors of awakening were growing and balancing as he was getting deeper and deeper into practice. And his practice began to open, and Mara saw that and wanted to prevent this from happening and began to charge him with fear as if there was a whole bunch of arrows from armies just shooting right at him. And Buddha just, with his heart and mind, just saw Mara standing there and just said simply three words, I see, four words, Oops. I see you, Mara. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I see
0: you, Mara. It's a metaphorical thing. It's a, it's a really very powerful statement when we really look at that. I see you, Mara. It's this point of I see you. When we don't see Mara, Mara can overtake us. So in that moment of the Buddha clearly seeing Mara, clearly clearly seeing the fear arising, clearly not responding to fear, seeing through the fear, the arrows turned into lotus blossoms. And then Mara, outraged, got out armies of enticement, seduction, I'll get him this way. And again, Siddhartha said, I see you, Mara. Seeing right through the seduction. Very powerful parts of our practice. This is resonant, I see you, Mara, to the acknowledging of what's there. It begins to dispel. The power of seeing, the power of knowing. We can even say in the power of love, for example, even like this one candle, if this room was totally dark, this one little candle would immediately dispel the light of this candle would dispel the darkness around it. The light of I see you, Mara, I see you, greed, I see you, grasping, I see you, anger, I see you, fear, is dispelling it. Early in the morning, Siddhartha Godama became the Buddha or the awakened one. He awakened into this understanding and comprehending of these four noble truths of suffering. He recognized its causes. He recognized that there's a pathway to the ending of these causes. So I'd like to really speak about the causes. And these causes offer us a lot of hope. I'd like to just first begin by saying that there's kind of a, uh, a reflection, it's actually called the five remembrances that I work with nearly daily. that reminds me to work with this practice deeply. The first one is that I am of the nature to grow old and I cannot escape from growing old. The second is I am of the nature to have ill health and I cannot escape from having ill health. No doubt we can meditate and eat good organic food and have good interpersonal communication and exercise, get good sleep. But we cannot in the end escape from ill health, nor can I escape to d- of death. That I am of the nature to die, I cannot escape from death. The fourth is that all that is dear and near to me, everyone I love are of the nature of change, and I cannot escape being separated from them. These are very powerful realities to vividly get. Sometimes for many of us it's on a conceptual level. But when these things really grab you by the juggler, it's a different story. We don't like to think about these things. There's an old Hindu proverb that says everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. The last remembrance is a very hopeful and powerful remembrance. It says that my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. This is a very powerful statement. This is suggesting the possibility that we can begin to take responsibility for our well-being. My deeds, my actions, which are born upon my intentions, are my closest companions, and I am the beneficiary of them. So if indeed these are our closest companions, let us take a closer look. Can we become responsible to our lives? Responsible means taking a close look at my pain at what might be fueling it what might be causing it you know when I look around the room and we don't have to do the math very complexly here there's about 55 of us and there's about 55 sufferings it's quite clear death rate one per person on the planet that's another statistic that's very clear aging, separation, illness difficulties being in uncertain situations we share this the Buddha named this in his deep penetration understanding of this truth of suffering. As I mentioned, the Buddha spoke about that there is a cause. This is the second noble truth. And I really want to invite us to look deeply in this. And this is one of the most beautiful, clear, succinct, Translations or renditions of this noble truth of cause of suffering by Achan Amaro, who's an Englishman who's been a monk for many, many years. He's now a terror, an elder. And he says, The noble truth of the cause of suffering is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Powerful words, compelling and intoxicating. And this compelling, intoxicating aspect causes us to be born into things again and again. It causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever-seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. These are very powerful words and I'd like to speak about this a little bit more deeply. I'd also like to say that underneath the craving as the cause of suffering is even a deeper root and that is unawareness. Dan actually spoke about in these 12 dependent links beginning with unawareness, beginning this cycle, a circular cycle of suffering. This cycle is driven by the compelling and the intoxicating aspects of craving that bring us into being born into things again and again. My teacher, Tom Caluseto, he had a very beautiful description to end this wheel of suffering. and He actually said this is really the short translation for dependent origi- origination, these 12 dependent links, this circular cycle that Depending on this, this happens, that happens, so forth. It's these causes of suffering. But he says, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. Very simple, very clear. If you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. That's why the knowing is so important in the Dharma, in our practice. Tampulu Sero said, said, and it's, this is very wonderful, he says, if you know that you are filled with craving or hatred, anger, delusion, whatever it is, your top 40, if you know, and that know is spelled K-M-O-W, if you know that this is arising, you are gaining knowledge. If you don't know, you are accumulating more unawareness, more ignorance. The the operative here is the knowing. It's not saying that craving, in this case, is bad. It's just to know it. And the knowing is bringing us understanding. It's very beautiful that Norman Fisher, a Zen uh, priest, he wrote a, a Buddhist translation of the Psalms And in it, he changed a lot of the biblical words, the verbs of like, the person was wicked, unrighteous, evil, bad. He changed all of those words to, they were heedless, they were unaware, they were not seeing clearly. So let's take a closer look at these causes. The cause of Craving for sensual delights, and we could compare that almost in Western psychology is like the akin to like almost like the eros instinct. Have you ever felt craving that was compelling and intoxicating? You don't have to raise your hand. I won't put you. On the spot. <laughs> yeah, I put you on the spot. But if you ever had food, sex, you've gone shopping, somehow feel you're special that you're important, you might have had that feeling every now and again that was very compelling and intoxicating. The question is, with this compelling and intoxicating aspect to feel good, has it actually brought you lasting happiness? I don't see anybody raising their hand. I don't think so. The reason perhaps we can't get this lasting happiness is because there's some sense of belief inside that we are less than, there's something deficient, something that's not whole inside us, and somehow something outside of us is going to make us feel whole, or at least okay. What is compelling to be fed, to be nurtured, to be satiated? I remember one time eating tofu ice cream. I've told this before. Mm-hmm. I love tofu. I'm a vegan, so I love tofu ice cream. And I was eating it, and I was just, oh, this is so wonderful. <laughs> then all of a sudden, I saw there was one spoonful left, and then I just got sad and angry <laughs> and scared, oh, and what the hell am I going to do? I'll go get another cup. <laughs> but I knew that wasn't the answer. But there was something about being fed that was somehow that satiation was that sense of me feeling whole, back home, safe. But it's not lasting when it's outside yourself. There's some type of a sense of feeling for me. I could see a sense of mm, there wasn't some wholeness and this was somehow going to make me okay. It's very tricky and it becomes compelling, intoxicating. I need this, I want that. This is what will make me go out. Let me get on the internet and let me say, can I buy here? Go on a shopping spree. So it's just looking at the sense of the craving that's compelling and intoxicating. Now, look, I'm a householder. I've got a wife. She's fine if I desire her, but it's another thing if I'm clinging and holding on to her ankle and saying, please don't leave me. You know what I mean? So there's differences between the sense of this clinging and desiring, you know, and the sense of meeting a partner with a heartfulness. Kabir, he writes about this wanting. He says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to. And I keep spitting out. I gave up sewn clothes and and I now wear a robe. But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. I still throw it over my shoulder very elegantly. So then I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry all the time. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day long. (laughs) I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the world wants to break its link, when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it perhaps can still hold on to one other thing. On and on it goes. This craving that is compelling and intoxicating that brings us born into things Again and again. The next aspect, which is to do more with our ego, the ego instinct, is this craving to be something. I'm special. I'm this, I'm that. I'm Bob. I'm a meditation teacher. I live in Santa Cruz. I drive a Prius. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a vegan. I'm this, I'm that. I like to go to Dharma's restaurant. So it's just this I, 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 this wanting to be special. Now, no doubt, on a very fundamental human level, we do have needs as human beings, and we need, need to be seen and to be recognized But there's that other side of a thirst for somehow to be known, to be special, that is such a source of deep suffering and pain the more that we leave ourselves. Again, it's that sense of deficiency that's within us. Somehow, if I can get outside of you, some way for you to tell me that I'm okay, then I can know I'm okay inside. It's a sense of there's a hole and it's a craving to be seen, to be known. Emily Dickinson says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Mm -hmm. Then there's a pair of us but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. How much pain have we experienced in our lives in this wanting to be accepted? I mean, these are core and deep things to be known, to be seen, to be accepted with the group. Again, if we're looking for that outside place of recognition, it will be a very painful way. It's like from that song, it's the verse that goes I'm looking for love in all the wrong places and find it so it's within us and the more that we leave ourselves the more pain there'll be Kabir who I just love so much he says are you looking for me this is a poem about finding your heart Says, are you looking for me? Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat, and my shoulder is against yours. And you'll not find me in the stupas, nor in the Indian shrine rooms. You won't find me in synagogues, nor the cathedrals. You won't find me at Insight Santa Cruz, Spirit <laughs> Rock, or Land of Medicine Buddha. <laughs> You won't find me in downtown San Francisco nor in Santa Cruz. You won't find me if you have your legs winding around your own neck. You won't find me if you're eating nothing but vegetables. But when you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly when you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. It's in here. You won't find me with your legs winding around your neck or anything. Not outside of us. The other craving that the Buddha speaks about is the craving to feel nothing. thanatos The death instinct. Not wanting to be here. I trust many of us can relate to that. I actually noticed the other night in retreat here, there was a pain in my heart that was so wrenching, like a 9.9.9 out of a 10. And I found myself just, I did, like, trying to find, I just wanted to go to sleep, to not feel it. And then I recognized this is this feeling to want to feel nothing. I wanted to feel nothing so desperately because the pain was too difficult to bear. The craving to feel nothing. And I'm amazed how I, I, I never, I've been working with these Three aspects: sensual delight, craving to be something those two I, I know really well, and I didn't really relate, relate a lot to the craving to feel nothing, but now I'm beginning to like learn about it big time. How much of the time that I just don't want to feel this? I want to be somewhere else. It's too hard. <coughs> I want it to go away. It's very powerful when we think about, you know, like, I want to go away, I want distractions, TV, radio, books, go to the movies, do this, do that. Not that those things aren't fun, but looking, what's there? Getting myself wasted. Deep sources of suffering. The cravings to try to feel good, the cravings to try to be someone, the cravings to feel nothing, the Buddha, whew, man, bullseye as far as I relate in my life, this is like like powerful stuff to look in our lives. And how that when we are embedded in this conditioning, we've been talking about this conditioning, it gets embedded, it's habitual patterns. We begin to define ourselves about who it is that I am through these types of embedded conditionings and we continue on this cycle over and over again if we don't know. The Buddha clearly understood underneath that Bodhi tree these conditionings. That's what he. sometimes is referred to the Buddha as he attained the unconditioned. And there's many translations of what that could be. And one that I like to use in common, that I'd like to think of, is that he broke through the conditioned sense of self. The conditioning of the embedded patterns that were fueled and driven by our greed, hatred, and ignorance It was perpetuating the wheel of suffering. And we learn these at very early ages. We're babies and we're close to our caregivers and our lives and our learnings and we begin to learn things. We begin to experience things. We begin to develop stories about who I am. I know sometimes it's very scary. Some, I've actually had a few yogis ask me, like, but if I got enlightened, I mean, I'm, that's a scary prospect. I'll, I'll lose myself. And actually, my feeling is, if you get enlightened, the only thing you lose is the parts of you that you never liked anyways that didn't serve you. Those are just the self-destructive <laughs> tendencies. You get to have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> it's not bad. It's good. You get your cake and eating it. You just lose those parts that never served you. There's nothing to be scared of. But our embedded conditioning, our habitual conditioning, that's why sometimes we stay in dysfunctional situations. It's comfortable, even though it's not really helpful. So our practice is using our awareness to begin to wake up this sleeper. So I speak about, again, that the Buddha... Realized the unconditional, and again, from my point of view, I like to frame it as he broke through the conditioned embedded self, this habitual patterns, his narrative. Jason called it fabrications. that's also wonderful. This is what fuels these cravings, this pain, these narratives, these stories that we believe in to be real. Again, as I mentioned, the Buddha saw through these narratives, the stories, he realized that these limited definitions is not the whole picture. It's difficult for us, though, to break our identifications. It's an old teaching Sufi story of a Sufi guy that went into a bank to... I had a check and wanted to cash a check. And the teller said, "Um, can I see some identification? And the guy pulls out a mirror and looks at himself and goes, yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. This is the story I've been seeing every day in the mirror and the story I've been telling myself for many years. And again, as I mentioned, we have good reasons to be telling these stories because we've been brought up with our conditions and our upbringings. But perhaps it's not the full story. These stories that we sometimes tell ourselves can be very, very painful. I have a friend, dear friend. His uh, father was a retired submarine commander during the war, and he was amongst three other brothers, and his mom unfortunately died when he was about eight or nine years old. And, And so there was these four boys in the house and the retired submarine commander father doing the best that he possibly could. It's a horrendous, difficult situation. But the father, you know, due to his own pain and whatever, my friend was very tall, very clumsy, like a bull in a china shop. And so he was given a nickname. Very early on in his life. And his nickname was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. You're told this from a very early age. There's probabilities that you may begin to think that this is really true. And I've heard stories to similar degrees. Maybe you weren't out here called King Minus, but I've certainly heard from so many of us where the feelings of unworthiness, flawedness, deficiency, not-okayness, there's something fundamentally wrong with me, all these different types of shames is here in the room with so many of us in our woundings. These are very powerful stories to digest and to assimilate and to begin to define ourselves that this is who it is that I am. And these limited narratives can enslave us. And this practice is about breaking more free, lessening the hold of these narratives to notice something new. It's very interesting that there's a study done of Golden Gate um, people that jumped over the Golden Gate Bridge that survived. Not many people survive a jump over the Golden Gate Bridge, but there's a cohort of people that have survived. And, and a researcher did a study to, this was like maybe 10, 15 years after the jumps, to find out whether anyone had killed themselves and um, no one had. And when interviewed more, they all recognized, well, this was a very difficult time in my life when that happened, but life changes. It's a very interesting study that's indicating the possibility. At time, I got really locked into this definition that I'm whatever, and I'm jumping over the bridge, and that's it. But if somehow you survive, and you know, sometime later, well, I have a different way now of looking at me. So our challenge is to begin to be curious, to investigate the workings of our own mind, these narratives. It's a beautiful reading from Margaret Wheatley that says... I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So we are practicing to awaken. Antonio Machado says, Some say it's good to dream, and others say it's better to live. But best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Very beautiful lines from the Spanish poet. Some say it's good to dream, and others say it's better to live. But best of all, my friend, is to awaken. The teachings of the Dharma offer us a clear and direct path to awakening, to the lessening and potential ending of suffering. (coughs) It is all found within these four noble truths. Suffering, its cause, its end, and its pathway. Its pathway in cultivating virtue, So these are things to take home with us. The ways of virtue is working with our speech that's kind, that's honest, that's useful and timely. Practicing the least harm, living the precepts that we've been trying to live with here and that we'll go home with. Trying to live with livelihoods that are supportive and not harmful. Working with developing our ways to gather deep effort to restrain and abandon ways that don't serve our well-being and that of others and efforting and developing ways that maintain and develop ways of serving and supporting ourselves in the path towards peace. As we've been cultivating this mindfulness of the body, the feelings, the mind states, dharmas. Developing our concentration, our steadiness of mind that opens to great wisdom, to the understanding of the way things are of suffering is lessening. So these are very concrete things that we can begin to do within our practice to help break the spell, the enchantment of this narrative that enslaves us, that is compelling and intoxicating in time, that brings us into birth again and again, born into things again and again, finding that sense of home inside our own being. So we work with this practice by sitting still, just as the Buddha here. Yes, when we sit with the practice, lots of stuff, the Jewish, uh, Yiddish technical words, (laughs) chazerai, lots of shit going around. But Gradually in time, things begin to settle. We begin to see this embedded conditioning, the narratives, the stories, the ways that we define who it is that I am, and we begin to see that they're limited, they're not real. They're part of this conditioning that no doubt led to this identification, but we can begin to break freer from this enslavement. So Achin Chah he writes keep your mind still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. And all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come and drink at the pool. Those are all the workings of your mind. And in time, you will clearly see the nature of all things. You'll see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness, this is the peace of the one who is awakened. Achincha leaves us with really, this is, uh, this is very similar to Jason's description just don't cling to anything or whatever, something like that, what he said. Whatsoever, mm-hmm. not, nothing's to be clung on to. And Achin says, let it be, grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Step out of the battle where it's cool. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Challenges us. Mm-hmm. Do you dare? Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Very powerful teachings. So I'm coming to my end. So this is from Achan Buddhadasa, very wonderful Thai master. He says, Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart that does not cling to anything. This is the peace of nirvana. It's always here, available when we let go. And so, actually, my teacher, Tamka Lucero, He said to us in a teaching that you can actually experience some freedom with three breaths. You can get a taste. So I'll invite us to sit with three breaths right now. And so the first breath he invites us to breathe in and breathe out and experience in this moment as you breathe in and out that you are not craving for anything. That you're experiencing freedom in this moment. Just breath in and breath out. And the next breath in and out that you're experiencing, no aversion, no hatred, no ill will. And then in this next breath, you're experiencing no unawareness, no ignorance. You're breathing in and you're knowing you're breathing in as you're breathing in. You're knowing that you're breathing out as you're breathing out this absolute clarity of mind. So for three more breaths, breathing in and out, no greed, breathing in and out, no hatred, Breathing in and out, no ignorance. Breathing in and out, freedom. Breathing in and out, loving kindness. Breathing in and out, clarity. This state of the heart, clarity, kindness, generosity, love, is the state of the heart of one who is awakened. And we can experience it. May it grow. And so I'll just end with one more reading called Have Compassion balance this practice of clarity and insight have compassion for everyone you meet even if they don't want it what seems conceit, bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen you do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit meets the bone. You do not know what is going on down there where the spirit meets the bone. May all beings be at peace. Teacher Tampu Lucero said also that that's a good way to die breathing in and breathing out, no greed, hatred, ignorance. Thank you very much. So, some walking practice. See you back at.